from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Arden Hills, Minnesota. On this week's edition, the state of the sustainability profession, a conversation on global water security, the first installment in our Clean Energy Equity Showcase series, and why the case for value in carbon is growing louder. We're turning up the volume this week on 350. It's September 28th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always in New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It was great to see you earlier this week. Exactly. I was in New York with you at uh, Climate Week because uh, there ha- just haven't been enough climate conferences yet in September. And so right. glad yeah. we got to do that. <laughs> uh, I just saw you briefly. What did you end up doing most of the week? So I actually had a couple of conversations, personal conversations, one with Anel Green Power, the head of that, which was fascinating. We talked about a lot of different uh, topics, including the the need to turn more loads electric, which is something I wrote about in my newsletter this past week. I also had a chance to catch up with Rico, um, with Sergio Cato, who is the sustainability director there. And that was fascinating because, um, you know, they were the first Japanese company to get on board with the RE100, which I don't know if you knew that, but a big digital copier, um, office, workplace, uh, you know, automation, lots of big services that they, they provide. And um, so we had a great chat about just to be quite honest, something I knew little about, which is the Japanese electric market, um, but also about how they're turning their workforce into clean energy advocates. So that that's something that um, that was quite fascinating. I found actually that there were a lot of uh, national announcements this past week, uh, lots of um, interesting commitments there, but not so much of the corporate side. Um, I think Everyone kind of uh, uh, got them all out a little bit earlier this month. Um, so most of the focus was on the national level activity. So aside from the opening ceremony, I didn't see you much. Where were you uh, in New York, Joel? Well, that's all I saw, the opening ceremony, even just part of it uh, at the at Climate Week. But I went over across town to the uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, it was putting on their second annual Sustainable Development Impact Summit. Really interesting. Uh, this is uh, something they, they sort of picked up, I think, to carry on some of the kinds of conversations that went away when the Clinton Global Initiative uh, closed down a couple years ago. Uh, I hosted, facilitated two conversations there. One was uh, about water security, um, sort of how we think about water and sort of who needs to be at the table, how do we create the conditions that uh, that are needed, but at a pretty high level. I mean, we had, uh, it was Chatham House Rules, so I can't say exactly who was in there, but I just say a chairman of a large European brewing company there, uh, a U- United Nations official, um, a, a lot of different um, you know, sort of high-level people, as you would expect from the organization that puts on the uh, the big event in Davos. Um, and, and so that was very interesting. But the other one 
really interesting. The second uh, event that I facilitated was a conversation about a budding movement to create science-based targets for things other than carbon. So I think most of our listeners know that uh, there's been the Science-Based Targets Initiative. We've written about it uh, quite a bit and did one of our either the 2018 or 2017 trends in the State of Green Business Report about the rise of science-based targets. Um, and that's uh, and now about 500, not quite 500 companies have signed on to the Science-Based Target Initiative to uh, commit to uh, using uh, targets that that actually are derived in science, as the, the name implies, but basically say, you know, this is our fair share of the climate problem. Because one of the things that so many sus- sustainability solutions don't really tell us is that question I've been asking for a long time, which is how good is good enough? You could create a, a what seems to be an audacious climate commitment, but it may not actually cover your company's uh, fair share in terms of its impacts, whether it's at the manufacturing use, disposal, supply chain, whatever. And so that's been, you know, at least it's created, we don't know how successful it'll be in terms of how many companies actually create meet those goals over time. Well, time will tell. But at least it's put a measurable, accountable, science-based target that uh, we can all look at and compare from company to company. So now there's a group, some of the same NGOs that that helped create that, uh, some uh, big organizations like uh, BSR and WRI and uh, the Stockholm Resource Center and WWF and others coming together and say, well, what else can we do with science-based targets? And so this, this session that I facilitated uh, looked at five different things. We broke up into groups and we looked at water, biodiversity, oceans, land use, and cities. The question being, can we create science-based targets for companies in each of those areas? Hmm. That's interesting. The other word I'm hearing bandied about, and I'm curious if it was part of the dialogue, is the context, right? So there's science and there's also the context because the science will be different from region to region. There's the, yeah, there's all sorts of factors that, that are um, variables that are very hard to account for. Definitely. Yeah, context is is, a, is definitely an issue, particularly with water, because because water uh, depends not just on place to place, but season to season. And so, uh, what's mandated or required to do uh, in one water basin in one part of the world may be very different than what's needed in another part of the world. Uh, I was, as I we reported last week, I was in Kentucky, and it turns out that Kentucky is uh, has this incredible abundance of fresh water. Uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, not just the fact that it has the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers uh, going uh, alongside it. And, um, you know, they're going to have very different water issues or factories there or farms there have very different water issues than we have in California. So context is based on, of course, year to year, California or Kentucky may have very different situations. So you ended the week in Arden Hills, Minnesota. What are you doing there? Yeah, Arden Hills, Minnesota is just uh, outside of the Twin Cities. And it's the home of a company called Lando Lakes. And you probably know Lando Lakes, if nothing else, than for its butter. That's how it started as a, as a dairy cooperative. Uh, and the butter, um, you've, you've ever seen the, the 
a Native American uh, maiden, as it's called, her name is Mia, uh, on her knees holding a butter, holding forth some butter. It's their logo that's been around for probably 80 or 90 years. The, the company itself is almost 100 years old, and it's a member-owned agricultural cooperative that uh, focuses uh, not just on the dairy industry, but also uh, on crops and and other things, uh, including a lot of agricultural products, uh, feed products. So they own the Purina brand for everything but dog and cat food, so for animal feed of other kinds. And uh, they're hosting uh, the this week's uh, edition of the Green Biz Executive Network. We have three meetings in September, and you may recall I was in Omaha a few weeks ago for Uni- at Union Pacific, and last week in Lexington, Kentucky, for at the headquarters of Lexmark. And here we are at uh, Atlanta Lakes. Um, it's a really interesting company because this network, about 4,000 members, I think uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, cooperative uh, in, in the United States. Uh, and the network touches 25% of America's farmers, 30% of American animal protein, half of America's harvested acres, and 90% of America's grocery retail outlets are somehow connected through to Lando Lakes. And so uh, they've been, we went out to their innovation center in Wisconsin across the uh, Mississippi from its headquarters and looked at sort of how they're helping farmers become more productive and sustainable. They have a sustained division. It's one of their four divisions. And a little bit later in the show, uh, you'll hear from my conversation with Matt Karstens, who's the senior vice president here. And, and head of the Sustain Business Unit. So that's why I'm in Arden Hills this week. Let's go back to the past week in the Week in Review. So I think we have to start this week with uh, the biannual report that we published this past week called uh, The State of the Sustainability Profession 2018. John Davies, our colleague who runs the Green Biz Executive Networks here with me in Minnesota this week, puts this together based on a a survey that we did not just of the Green Biz audience, but a number of other audiences uh, working a lot with uh, WineRab sustainability um, talent uh, acquisition firm, uh, Headhunter, basically, for sustainability professionals run by Ellen WineRab, by a uh, columnist for GreenBiz, writes the talent show con, uh, column. And uh, this looks at the sustainability profession. It's, it goes into all sorts of aspects of what uh, sustainability professionals do and where they report and what kind of resources they have. But the thing, of course, that everybody wants to know is how much do they make? And this is originally started off, it was originally called the, the uh, Sustainability uh, Professional Salary Survey, and that's how it began. And over time, we kept adding more and more about the responsibilities and trends of those in the profession of sustainability. So um, it's a free download that I encourage uh, you to check out. Have you had a chance to peruse it? I haven't per- perused the whole report. I did uh, look through the this, the essay that uh, John wrote um, about about it, and I was happy to hear um, that that uh, female managers and directors actually out earned their male counterparts. Um, that was like for me, like one of those wow, that's kind of neat. Um, wasn't happy to hear that if you get the VP title, that you're still being paid less than if you were a male. But it's uh it's 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 not that much less. It's just a little bit less. Yeah. I'm not saying that's good, but it's well, it's, it's we're getting. I think what's interesting is we're getting closer and closer to parity in this field, yeah. which is probably yeah. ahead of most other fields. 
Yeah, the, I, I suppose the thing, the, the finding that I most uh, found uh, to cart in was the, the notion that um, like if, if your CEO got axed and um, the sustainability leader got axed in, of, of a corporate, you know, of these companies that were surveyed, that um, it wouldn't have that much of an impact on whether the program would continue. Um, that was an interesting question for me. So does, you know, if you have, have a sustainability program um, and both the CEO and sustainability leader leave, will things fall apart? And only 17% said that their, their program would not continue. Um, 58% said it would carry on. That, that's, to me, was like a, one of those also gratifying findings that points to the integration of these teams within larger departments. And that was, was something else that I found interesting. There's, there, there's, you're seeing more people embedded in different parts of the organization. So yeah, while I didn't study all the data, I, I found uh, certain parts of it to be point to where we should continue to, to cover changes and, and, and the sorts of people that we should be interviewing. Yeah. And that really points up how strategic the sustainability profession has become inside companies. Cause it wasn't that long ago that uh, the minute there was any kind of downturn, a recession, not even a recession, just a downturn in the economy or in a certain market, uh, that the sustainability professions would be among the first people to be thrown overboard. And I think we're seeing now that that's, uh, um, that's not necessarily the case um, and will be tested the next time there is a recession. But it also goes to, to one of the findings in the research that John did that the profession continues to evolve from being tactical uh, like reporting and stakeholder engagement to being much more strategic and involved with change management and on the ground execution of things. And I think that's, uh, again, speaks to the growth of the field. I want to make sure that we plug the webcast that John is going to be doing next week on uh, Tuesday, October 2nd at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, along with uh, Dave Stangus uh, from the Campbell Soup Company and Jill Coling from Cargill, both the uh, chief sustainability officers there and sustainability search executive Ellen Weinreb, who, as I mentioned, uh, her firm was uh, instrumental in putting this report together. So we'll put a link to that on the uh, on the website, but you can uh, probably find that on the homepage as it is, the State of the Profession webcast Tuesday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'd like to make a plug for Ellen's essay on the, the report as well, Sustainability Careers of the Future Require Depth and Breadth. She also had a, some, some thoughts about the results, including one, one finding that was, was also notable, and, and that is that industries are learning from each other. Right. So um, many of the companies are looking outside their own business or their own sector for talent. So they're cross pollinating um, from from other companies, from and from other industries as well. Fifty six percent of the directors are being hired from other companies and industries in the past. Up to 50 percent of those roles were filled internally. So there's a shift going on. People recognize that there's a lot of good things happening in other industries that might apply to their own organization. Yeah, this field is is getting uh, requiring people who have more depth in things, and this goes to some advice I give people. I get a lot of calls, as in probably you do too, from people who want to quote unquote get into sustainable business, uh, and and often what that means is they want to work for a company in a sustainability function. And my advice is often, you know, don't necessarily go into the sustainability department, but if you do, 
first learn something, learn accounting, learn marketing, learn engineering, learn you know, biology, chemistry, uh, learn finance or whatever it is, and bring that to the sustainability department because that's what's needed. Supply chain is another great field. That's what people, they need to know uh, how business works. The era of the sustainability generalist is is on the wane and, and there's a need for, for, for people who do have specialties. And so I think Ellen speaks to that. And I think that's, a, again, a really important part of anyone's career search, whether it's you're at the beginning of it or or mid-career changing uh, kind of situation. That's just really important that you go in there, not just with a sustainability bent, but also with some deep knowledge. So I want to talk about a piece that you wrote, Heather. It's called The Case for Valuing Carbon is Growing Louder, Even Though Tax is Still a Dirty Word. Are we getting closer to a carbon tax? <laughs> well, the um, yeah, <laughs> this was one of those geeky things that I pulled off last week. I, I sat, um, I think I mentioned it in last week's podcast. I sat for about four hours on a on a present a set of presentations about carbon pricing, and um, so so a couple things to think about. Number one, um, which is something I hadn't realized, is as back in two thousand and four, um, there was a move to sort of start this sort of pricing mechanism, trading, taxes, whatever. And about 1% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions were, were addressed by that. So in other words, um, you had to pay a fee for, for producing the carbon, or if you um, did, you could, tr- you could buy credits and so forth. So it was sort of the, the start of the, the marketplaces and, and, and so forth um, that we've written about in the past. And you've covered this this issue for many years. Um, it's, it's, it's newer to me, but but anyway, I was surprised to find out that almost 20% um, of, if you think about it, global um, CO2 emissions are covered now or soon will be covered by one of these models. So think about that. 14 years ago, 1%. Now, almost 20%. Um, you've got China about ready to roll out its system. You've got other company, uh, countries, rather, uh, France, uh, sort of doing things that are uh, encouraging large multinationals to price carbon or somehow account for them within their business models. Here in the United States, um, it's a it's a different um, it's a different animal. Of course, it's a very it's become a very bi- uh, a part. Of, it's been traditionally a partisan issue, but now you have a couple of different groups su- suggesting bill you know suggesting legislation and models that. Um, would impose a fee, and, and sort of the idea is that, hey, why not incent companies to to do this? Um, we'll give and we'll give the the dividend. One of them is called a dividend plan. We'll give them back to um, the consumers, so um, we'll help them essentially pay for any price increases that that encouraging carbon reductions would have. Now, you know, like I said, you've covered this much longer than I have. We've we've seen lots of proposals. Dot, you know, be come come into the to the legislative arena and then get axed down. And certainly, the current um, political environment in the United States isn't conducive to that. But the plan that was introduced over the summer was a bipartisan bill, and um, more than thirty companies, including General Motors, Gap, Levi Strauss, Campbell, uh, Mars. I mean, even some energy companies, BP. Um, America and Shell, they, they wrote a, a letter when um, 
Carlos Cabello came out this summer with his idea, and they they said, yeah, you know what, we really we really do need to think about this, um, and we we do need to uh, start moving forward. For those companies, it's really a um, it's really a, a, a matter of, of knowing certainly whether or not they have to worry about this thing. They want certainty, right? Um, they don't want to be taxed or or charged or trading. They don't have a different scheme in every region, every state, every country, et cetera. So anyway, I, I'm babbling, but uh, <laughs> but I do dif- I do think there's a, a different climate, if you will, um, as far as these schemes. Well, and there's also, I think, a growing recognition that something like this is inevitable. And if you do it right, you're not, this is not just a, a new tax. It's a tax that would offset some other kinds of taxes. You'd be taxing um, a bad carbon in, in, instead of taxing goods, which is often what we do. Uh, and so th- I think th- there's a potential here, uh, but it, as you said, not in the United States in any time soon. We'll see what happens in November. We'll also see what happens with uh, pressures on uh, on not just companies, but the comp- the pressures that companies put on on the government. I think you know we hear Republicans uh, in the United States uh, Congress talk about climate, or at least you hear that they're talking about it, but they just can't. Uh, politically yet bring it to the fore. So uh, at some point, there will be a you know proverbial tipping point where this conversation does get going. But uh, I think it's going to be a long haul. In the meantime, uh, other countries will be figuring out how to do this in a way that that uh, you know helps them bring down uh, their greenhouse gas emissions while creating the funds to create the the kinds of uh, sustainable infrastructure, for example, or or equity issues to bring, make sure there's clean energy and water for everyone. Uh, I think that's the model that uh, how do we use a a price on carbon to not just solve the climate issue, but also uh, more of the sustainable development goals. The Green Biz team is committed to supporting clean economy organizations that put access and equity at the center of their mission. Our inaugural Clean Energy Equity Showcase at Verge 18 in Oakland, California, is designed to honor and highlight three Bay Area-based organizations that are doing exemplary work in this area. Starting with this episode, we're going to feature segments with all three of them. Here with me to discuss this new initiative is Shauna Rappaport, our Director of Strategic Programs. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Heather. All right, let's start with the backstory. How did this showcase come about? Well, as part of bringing our flagship Verge 18 conference home to Oakland this year, I think both we, uh, GreenBiz as an organization, and also with the support of our stellar host committee, um, really saw a unique opportunity to kind of take our community engagement efforts to the next level. Um, And part of that, you know, to your point, Greenbus has long been committed to elevating and supporting and, and certainly celebrating two organizations that are doing really outstanding work to uh, bring the people piece of sustainability central to the conversation. But we saw an opportunity to sort of formalize that in a way by honoring, as you said, three organizations that are doing really outstanding work to bring career opportunities and workforce development training programs um, to sort of frontline communities that have, have been the most impacted and have the most to benefit from a new clean economy. 
Well, I'm not local, but I know there's a lot of different organizations in Oakland that you, we could have picked. So I'm curious how we selected these particular organizations. Yeah, well, we landed on three organizations that, interestingly enough, have, um, while they're all based locally here in Oakland and the Bay Area, have work that spreads both sort of focused locally, national, uh, uh, statewide, and nationally. And so those those organizations are the Rising Sun Energy Center, Grid Alternatives, and the Green Lining Institute, each of which hold sort of bring sort of a unique piece. The Green Line Institute focuses a lot on frontline communities and 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 the policy piece around all of this. Grid Alternatives does awesome solar installs, actually bringing uh, folks from communities as well as folks. Greenbiz has done. Uh, participated in, in, in solar install days, um, but actually putting solar on people's roofs. Rising Sun Energy Center does a lot around workforce development and training programs. So each one of them we felt um, sort of embodies a, a unique piece of what's really needed to ensure that clean energy um, itself and clean energy job opportunities make it to the folks who, who need it and deserve it the most. Well, without further ado, we'll uh, let's get to the first segment. So tell me who we're going to feature first and who we'll be hearing from. Yeah, well, we're kicking off this week with Erica Mackey of Grid Alternatives. And so just to say briefly, so I've taken the opportunity the last couple of weeks to connect with the executive leaders of each of these organizations. You'll be hearing from Erica Mackey at Grid today and from Rising Sun and the Green Lining Institute over the next couple of weeks. And at our upcoming Verge conference as well, we're going to be doing a number of efforts both to make the event accessible to their staff. Um, we're going to have a clean energy equity showcase on the Verge Interconnect floor where we're um, producing posters that really feature their work and how the Verge community can support them. And so we're going to kick off this week with, with Erica from Grid Alternatives, who will talk both, bring both her incredible perspective about sort of where we are in the clean energy equity conversation, but also talk about the work that they're doing to bring solar to low-income communities and communities of color, and also, um, yeah, really bring those workforce development opportunities uh, to those communities as well. So without further ado, here's Erica. So Erica, when it comes to the conversation about clean energy and equity and really ensuring that we're building a clean economy that works for all, where are we now? Well, I think that the answer to where are we now in terms of equity and sustainability and, you know, this real fight to, to reverse and stop the effects of climate change, it depends on what state you're in and what city you're in. It's been so clear that really this fight is being led at the local level. And so it really is about what is happening in a local community, both at the grassroots level, at the business level, and at the policy level to really move towards a clean transition that includes everyone and everyone with a biggie, not a little So, you know, in California, California is really out in front leading around putting equity 
first. Um, and much of that is both because some of our policy makers really reflect our communities in California, but also because um, at the at the you know sort of environmental justice local level, organizations have been pushing and fighting for a really long time, saying if you're gonna you know build a clean economy, don't do it on somebody else's back. Make sure that you know families that are on the front lines of climate injustice are the first to benefit. Are you know in charge of creating the solutions. So we have had some significant wins in. California, but that really varies by the the city level and also across the country varies by the state level. And so based on that, what do you, what do you see as what's really needed? What what needs to happen next, what, you know, both in terms of the local action but also state and national leadership? I think we need a lot more than uh, lip service to access to really go deep into talking what equity is. And I think that's both about a clean transition and the policy needed, but also about how we see climate work in the broader base of social justice in our country. So I don't think we can, you know, think solely about environment and climate without thinking about you know, economic injustice, racial injustice, um, impact of the criminal justice system, impact of our immigration laws. We need to really see all of these things as if you're on the front line, you're on the front line, not just um, about climate. And so, you know, folks that are closest to the issue really have the greatest sense of the solutions. And so, you know, we need to really make sure that the the climate movement and, you know, that we're building our businesses, that we're building our, you know, organizations, that we're electing our officials in ways that um, really use the leadership um, and entrepreneurship and ingenuity of communities that really are paying the price for climate injustice and understand, um, you know, the important work that needs to be done. Much of the green biz community and our listeners in this case come from the private sector. What's the role, the responsibility, the opportunity that you see for the business community in all this? I think the private sector has such an important role to play, one, because we as businesses are made up of humans, right? We work in community and are made up of the communities in which we're part of. And so I think, you know, business can certainly have a huge role in our own practices. So what kind of businesses are we, um, what are we working for? What like double bottom line, triple bottom line, um, quadruple bottom lines are we going to have? They can um, think a lot about the ways in which their philanthropy or giving back um, really, you know, works in partnership with the knowledge of community-based organizations on the ground we can build better businesses that are more diverse, more inclusive, that, you know, really allow for advancement and allow um, our decision makers at, you know, in our boardrooms to have a 
diversity of views that I think will make us both stronger businesses. But it, you know, has been shown that, you know, when we have more diverse boardrooms and more diverse leadership, that also means we're more environmental. Not only do we have better business returns, um, but, um, you know, diversity at the table also leads towards cleaner business practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we close, I want to give just a minute for, for you to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at Grid Alternatives and, you know, maybe focus in on just one piece that you're that you're most proud of these days. I think the thing that I love so much about Grid Alternatives at our best is really that we sit at this intersection of climate jobs and economic justice, that we're installing solar for families that wouldn't be able to get solar otherwise, so we're, you know, providing economic savings, but at the same time, building this, you know, distributed power plant um, across, you know, many, many communities and providing um, hands-on job training to get those skills that folks need to get jobs in the growing solar industry. And so, uh, you know, what that feels like is almost a block party every day at somebody's house where communities come together, everybody's like, you know, bringing a potluck dish and um, installing solar in, um, in their own community and people are getting training and, you know, it's a way to really take back our own rooftops and say, Hey, we are the leaders of this climate movement. um, And we are actually able to put green in our pockets um, and, you know, green in our communities. And we know how important that is because most folks are living in communities that are crisscrossed by highways and understand, you know, climate in this really visceral way that it's about asthma and it's about trash in my neighborhood um, as opposed to something that's really far away. And so being able to do something super tangible that at the end of the day, you're like, oh, yeah, I actually was in charge of that drill and put those pants on my rooftop, that feels really amazing. And especially as solar jobs are growing and growing and growing, to be able to then have real skills to get good jobs and good green jobs, um, you know, at that intersection and that really, you know, tiny sort of block party, we're actually making a huge difference. So you're saying the clean, equitable, inclusive economy can be a party? (laughs) Totally. Um, And uh, we can do it. I mean, you know, climate change feels really overwhelming. And I think there is something so helpful about saying, well, let's put one foot in front of the other. Um, and you know, if we if we build it, um, we can really we can sort of change this reality just one rooftop or one panel at a time, one job at a time. Erica, thank you so much for for your time, for your vision, for your leadership, to your incredible team. We're um, we're so honored to be um, celebrating you in this way, and we're we're really looking forward to seeing you at Verge 18. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much.
as I said, part of my Climate Week activities was participating in the World Economic Forum's Sustainable Development Impact Summit uh, here in New York. And uh, part of that involved facilitating a session on water security. And here to talk about that session and the, the project overall is Callie Stinson, the project lead for the Global Water Initiative. Hey, Callie, so first of all, tell me a little bit about the initiative overall. Sure. Well, the Global Water Initiative is part of the World Economic Forum Center for Global Public Goods, um, and we really work on accelerating progress on SDG 6, which is the SDG that focuses on water and sanitation, um, in particular through harnessing the forum's terms, sort of the the fourth industrial revolution, so making use uh, of a lot of the advanced technologies and capabilities that we're seeing coming down the pipeline quite fast. How can we make use of that for water? So you had quite a group of uh, maybe 30 thought leaders from uh, a number of different nations and uh, public-private civil society. What were you hoping to bring them all together? What were you hoping would happen? It was a really great conversation today across a pretty diverse audience. Our objective today was to really continue to sort of explore where some of these opportunities um, for the water sector are when it comes to the fourth industrial revolution. I think there's increasingly an awareness that there's quite a big opportunity to take advantage of here, but what that means in practice is still somewhat of an early conversation. And so our objectives in the conversation today were really to get a better understanding of where some of these early proof points are and where some of those opportunities are. Perhaps, you know, coming from a tech perspective, if you're not used to working in water, where some of those business opportunities are. And equally, if we're, you know, from the water perspective, where some of the emerging technologies are that we should be paying closer attention to. So really exciting to see kind of that convergence of conversations uh, happening today. One of the things that struck me today was that there's a lot of technology already and, and more coming and some great new um, apps and, and platforms and, and databases and connectivity tools, but that it, the technology only takes you so far in terms of what happens, for example, with the public sector. There's a lot of talk about the public sector at all levels in all countries in terms of how to engage them. What's the opportunity for business there? Yeah, that's exactly one of the themes I thought was really interesting today as well, which is the technology is already there in so many instances, but uh, the data and the technology alone aren't going to be the solutions. I think one of the, one of the um, comments that came out in the discussion today was that you know if if uh, data is delivered without tangible solutions. It actually just works to erode trust, right? We have to be working to sort of bring this information to scale in a way that works for the governments and the people that need these solutions the most, right? So that's a really multi-stakeholder conversation um, by definition. And so how do we take the capabilities and expertise that we're seeing come out of the private sector and really work in lockstep with communities and individuals and governments that need to be able to translate that information into the solution sets that they need to solve their water problems. So what's the role of the forum in making that happen? Well, the forum in in this context and through our water security rewired um, work is is really functioning as a platform basically for that conversation, bringing together the public, the private, you know, academic, civil society, the many different stakeholders that need to be a part of this conversation um, in order to figure out where the gaps are. And I think equally um, what we can learn from other sectors, right? And what are the other agendas that have sort of gone on this journey before that we can learn from and, and draw some of that expertise into the water conversation. Yeah, I was surprised that some of this conversation still seems so nascent mm. uh, that water's obviously been an issue for 
ever in some parts of the world. And yet there still seems to be a fairly early stage conversation, including what can we learn from other sectors and some of the the kinds of things that movements or frameworks uh, often go through at the very beginning. Part of me is concerned that this is sort of a Groundhog Day moment where we keep mm. sort of having these early conversations. What do you think it's going to take to to get this moving forward at the scale, scope, and speed that we need? It's a really good question. I think in, in some ways the conversation around technology opportunity for water is, is nascent, but there's also a lot of really promising work already taking place on this issue across sectors. Um, you know, we came from World Water Week just a, a few weeks ago in Stockholm, and there was the IWA meeting uh, this past couple weeks in, in Tokyo, and these are conversations that are, are starting to turn. I think we are sort of hitting that tipping point in general awareness amongst the sort of water community that there is a big opportunity and that this boulder is really starting to to kind of come up and over the edge. I think the the need and the opportunity is that we sort of catch that somewhat of a front foot, right? Because if we kind of stand back, the technology solutions will come. But the trick is that we have to work together in a multi-stakeholder environment to make sure that those solutions continue to be developed in the public interest, right? Otherwise, you know, water is an intractable problem. It is begging for solutions and those solutions will be developed. The tech will come. That's not the question. It's what we do with the tech. So it's if everybody knew what everybody knew would be a good start. (laughs) So what happens next? Well, we have uh, an exciting year ahead. We're kind of trying to continue building on this momentum. The Impact Summit is sort of our our annual check-in on on this agenda. We've got uh, a lot of interesting sort of seeds that have been planted across the community and members and and different projects that are starting to sort of percolate. Now we're sort of looking into more pilot implementation phase. So how do we, now that we've got this sort of agreement and and conversation really started, how do we develop those um, proofs of concept and those proof points that can continue to prove where the opportunity space is? So we've got a big project brewing right now on urban water resilience and how do we move kind of more actionable insights um, for decision makers at the local level on water security. So I think that will be a big thing. And then, you know, right the way through Davos and all the way to the Impact Summit next year. Great. Well, lots to do. And uh, I look forward to continuing to be a part of it. Thanks for letting me play today. Callie Stinson, the project lead for the World Economic Forum Global Water Project. Thanks, Callie. Yes, thank you. So as I said earlier in the show, I'm here in Arden Hills, Minnesota this week at the headquarters of Lando Lakes. And I'm talking now with Matt Carstens, the senior vice president who oversees the sustainability efforts at Lando Lakes, including the Sustain Business Unit. Hey, Matt. How are you today? Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, it's so great to be here. Uh, you recently, in the last day or so, this week launched a, uh, a new platform called Terra. Um, for farmers and others in the in the f- food value chain, uh, what is it? What does it do? Tell us about it. Yeah, well, uh, what we started with is the announcement, like you said, of uh, True Terra, which at Land Lakes and in our business unit that I oversee, Land Lakes Sustain, we're really focused on taking our stewardship uh, through conservation practice to the next level. So, what we launched is uh, this new. Uh, uh, platform, if you will, called TrueTerra, which is a suite of uh, on-farm tools 
uh, and, and overall stewardship offerings that really are centered around how we help agriculture take farmer-led initiatives around stewardship through conservation practices to the next level. And what really makes it special is we launched it. We also at the same time said we've meant what we've said all along and this is going to be pre-competitive space where anyone can be a part of it. So any farmer, any ag retailer, any food company, any non-government organization, so on, can be a part of this, which is exciting for us. So this is not just something that's for the member companies of Land O'Lakes or the other members of, of their value chains. This is a free download? What, what, how do you get this? Yeah, so the, you know, this suite of, of uh, on-farm offerings is, is really a, a very advanced version of all the things that you can do all the way back to the farm level. So uh, it's, it's not something that's easily downloadable or anything like that, but, but opening the dialogue to come visit with us. Anyone's welcome and, and talk about what... Uh, is in that toolbox, if you will, that they would like to uh, to utilize for the for the future of their businesses, whether again it's on the farm level or all the way down to to grocery stores or, or food companies in general. Okay, so I get that it's not a single use Uber kind of app. What exactly? Give me some examples of what uh, this does. Yeah, so the other uh, part of the announcement that we had, which is uh, is, is True Terra Insights Engine, which is truly first of its kind. Uh, interactive digital platform, and I like to talk about it from an interactive standpoint because this this will allow farmers to be able to look at different scenario modelings and what they can do on their farm to not only uh, be uh, more environmentally sound, which we all want uh, everyone to do in the world, but also how that affects them economically and find that balance farm by farm uh, because we know one recommendation doesn't fit every farm, so how do they look at each piece of, of their farming operation and tailor those efforts that's, that's the balance between economics and environmental. So it's a pretty powerful tool in that way. So will this say how much uh, inputs, pesticides, and fertilizers to use, how much water? What, what are some of the kinds of information this provides that farmers weren't getting or at least not getting as easily? Yeah, so I think it, it definitely can look at the overall efforts of how much they're putting on, what is right, uh, and all that. High level, that's correct. But when you dig down into the weeds, it's more looking at uh, the different uh, practices, conservation practices they could put on farms. So looking at no-till versus strip-till, looking at cover crops, looking at uh, multiple applications of, of nitrogen or phosphorus or potash throughout the growing season. So it's really taking more of a prescriptive approach and looking at all the tools that's out there to be sustainable and how we can put that in a way that's right by farm. Um, and and it's, it's going to really, uh, in my humble opinion, revolutionize the tools that farmers now have available to be very prescriptive by farm across the board, not just around you know, fertilizer or seed, but going all the way through tillage and soil. And I know you are, are a big soil health person, and uh, this is really right in that zip code of digging into that soil piece and looking at how we can long-term become regenerative. So is this a business for Land O'Lakes? Uh, what, do you make money off this? What's the model, if any? Yeah, so uh, Land O'Lakes Sustain is uh, one of four businesses here at Land O'Lakes. So we've got our dairy business, which everybody knows, our Winfield United business, which is really around agronomy or crop production. And then we have Purina, which a lot of folks know for animal nutrition. Land O'Lakes Sustain is, is really focused on this, this topic of stewardship through conservation practices. So our goal is really taking farmer-led uh, initiatives and really looking at it from innovation, 
from customizable solutions, from insights that drive scalable continuous improvement and bringing all that together. Because for us, it's really, as, as a farmer-owned and ag-retail-owned cooperative, it's about this balance, the balance of the, uh, the precious resources we have, natural resources on the planet, and balancing that with farmer livelihood. And I think that's been the challenge for us is finding that balance. We always try to tip that scale one way or another. And that's where the TruTerra suite of offerings and the TruTerra Insights Engine is one of those uh, offerings will be really powerful in trying to find that. But absolutely, Land O'Lakes took a, a big step forward two years ago, starting uh, Land O'Lakes Sustain and making that one of its uh, businesses going forward. So we're excited. So I, there's a revenue model to this app. Is it a subscription-based thing? I'm always trying to understand what's, you know, is, is this philanthropy? Is this do good? Is this actually going to make money? Yeah, you know, uh, so there's there's per se not a charge that we have. I mean, this is what we do for a living for our network of, again, farmers that, that own our cooperative and, and their trusted advisors, which are ag retailers that provide the, the inputs, the insights, the, 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 the different services to the farmer. So for that group, it, it will be part of what we offer them through the, the normal course of business. But like we said with True Terra. Uh, that's going to be opened up for everyone, including things like TrueTerra Insights Engine. So for those arrangements, there will be obviously a fee to help offset our, our cost of doing business there. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's really trying to be pre-competitive and really putting our best foot forward. How can we solve this, if you will, grand challenge of, uh, of sustainability with stewardship through conservation practices? So you know, for everyone, it's opened up. You know, we'll have to have discussions on what they need and what it looks like and what those costs would be. But at the end of the day, this is this is not a get-rich-quick scheme or anything like that, I assure you. It's really put, uh, walking the talk, and, uh, and that's important for us at Land Lakes. Great. Well, I'll look forward to uh, its world-changing nature and uh, seeing how that goes. Maybe we'll visit back in another year or two and see how it's going. Matt Karstens is the Senior Vice President uh, of the Sustained Business Unit at Land Lakes. Thanks for uh, hosting and uh, letting us see your facility and your uh, innovation center uh, across the river in Wisconsin. It's really great to be here, Matt. Well, thank you, and, and uh, we're proud that we can show this kind of stuff off because there's a lot of great stuff going across ag and food, and anytime we can have these opportunities, we're going to take them. So I'd be happy to visit with you again in a year or so and give you a progress report for you and all your listeners. Great. Thanks again. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com 350. You'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode, like the webcast on the state of the profession and our upcoming Verge conference. And by the way, uh, if you want a 10% discount on uh, registering for Verge, there's one that's just for listeners of the 350 podcast. You go to uh, register and insert the code V as in Verge, 18 pod that's v18pod and you'll get 10% off just for people who made it to the end of this episode meanwhile you can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com we always love to hear from you greenbiz.com's director is stephanie joyce welcome back stephanie we're glad to have you back on board heather and i will be back next week for another edition of green biz 350 until then from all of us here at green biz group i'm joel mccower Thanks for listening.